It's spring, 1931. The scientific topic of evolution is the subject of much discussion, both in and out of the Church. B. H. Roberts, the senior member of the First Council of the Seventy, and Joseph Fielding Smith of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles have different views on this topic. Halfway around the world in South Africa, William Daniels, a black Latter-day Saint, valiantly serves as a branch president, even though he is unable to hold the priesthood. These stories are next in Chapter 21, A Keener Understanding. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm James Perry. Joining us today, we have Matthew McBride, the director of the Church History Department's Publication Division, and Ben Spackman, a historian of religion and science. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great to be here, Shailen. Well, Ben, this is your first time on the podcast. Will you just tell us a little about yourself and what it is you research and write about? Well, I started doing Old Testament and Ancient Near East and did a master's degree and some PhD work in that field. I eventually moved into American religious history with a focus on how Americans have interpreted the book of Genesis in light of changing understandings of the ancient Near East and Old Testament, as well as scientific progress. So I kind of do religion, science, interpretation of the Bible, and I focus on the 20th century. Well, that's amazing. We're really excited to have you here today. Thank you. Well, Ben, let's start with you today, because this chapter, we see two senior church leaders grappling with issues relating to science and religion. And we have church leaders expressing their concern about other church leaders, making statements about personal opinions that can be interpreted as doctrinal. It's kind of this complicated, if an apostle says it, it must therefore be true scenario where people are getting concerned about this. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the context that this issue is taking place. To what extent were debates about religion and science occurring in wider society or in other religious groups at this time? Well, this was a very common topic, and it was a hot topic, highly debated. And some of the framing is important to understand because of how it's affected us 100 years later. For example, at the end of the 19th century, two Americans named Draper and White had produced this framing of science and religion that they were kind of the same throughout history, and science and religion were inevitably and always had been at war with each other. And their books were extremely popular in spite of the fact that they were both really bad history. They were very poorly done. They both had strong axes to grind for various reasons. But they really framed what's called the warfare hypothesis. Science and religion are inevitably in conflict with each other. And that's kind of the default that Americans have inherited today, even though historians push against it really hard. And that framed this more specific issue of evolution, Christianity, scripture, and different groups were coming at this from different perspectives. One of the surprising things is that you find very, very few Christians in America at the time making what we think of as the primary anti-evolution arguments today, namely that the earth was created in six 24-hour days, it must be young, no death before the fall, things like that. Those weren't really major aspects of the debate in the early 1900s 
within the main intellectual theater in America. Those were very much fringe positions for Christians to take. And so when it comes to where the Latter-day Saints fit into this, what you find is kind of a middle position. You can find some hard positions against evolution in favor of young earth, creationism, kind of anti-science even at times. But you also generally find an openness, a cautious openness. President Ivins in the first presidency, for example, gave a couple general conference talks where he kind of cautioned against evolution, but then he essentially says, I'm not a scientist and I don't know. Whatever evolution has happened, God was involved with it. And so you find this Latter-day Saint openness at multiple levels where they kind of say, we don't know, the evidence points in this direction. As long as God is involved, that's okay. Whatever Latter-day Saints thought about evolution, and again, they ran the gamut, there wasn't a hard position on it one way or another, and they didn't pass laws on it. It was taught in schools, including at BYU. It was being taught in some church education system settings, even. There's a diversity of approaches and openness to evolution by church members, church leaders, and LDS scientists in the first half of the 20th century. And presumably that's because it's a reflection of what's going on in society generally. Is that the case? Yeah. And what's interesting to me as a historian is as I look at different Latter-day Saint approaches to this, I have read broadly enough that you can kind of extrapolate their first principles, their premises from the arguments they're making or that they're not making in certain cases. The idea of premises and assumptions is really key to understanding why, for example, Joseph Fielding Smith was so much at odds with B.H. Roberts and James E. Talmadge and John Witzow and some others, because they had some fundamentally different premises about how to deal with these questions, which involved what is the nature of revelation? What is the nature of scripture? How do we interpret it? That's been one of the things that's always interested me about the church is how we can have different premises. You know, people have had spiritual experiences, but everyone can interpret it in slightly different ways and can feel the spirit speaking to them in sometimes unique ways. There's not necessarily one uniform approach. But what I'd like to do now is just listen to this short extract from the chapter. At the heart of his unease was Elder Robert's effort to harmonize the scriptural account of the creation with scientific theories about the origins of life. Elder Roberts believed that fossil evidence proved human-like species had lived and died on the earth for millions of years before God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Elder Smith, however, argued that such beliefs were incompatible with scripture and church doctrine. He believed these species could not have existed before Adam's fall introduced death into the world. So, Ben, here we've got Elder Roberts, we've got Elder Smith, who are just clashing, really, over their views of how it all came to be. And we are zeroing in on this meeting that takes place on the 7th of April. What do we know about this meeting in terms of of how it went down? Do we know the tone that was used, for instance? We know the format, and I suspect the format reveals some things about the tenor of the meeting. Both of them had prepared lengthy papers arguing their position. 
and they each read their papers to the Quorum of the Twelve. Now, reading a paper is a safe way to present controversial information. You can choose very carefully how you say things, whereas in the moment, you might phrase them in a more controversial or inflammatory or a less precise way than you want to. Now, given the tenor of the documents that have survived from this history, their absolute oppositeness of perspective, B.H. Roberts' sometimes abrasive personality, and Joseph Fielding Smith's strong conviction that this was not a side issue, but this got at the very core of the gospel, I suspect this was a fairly highly charged meeting. And I think we can also see that in what happens, namely that the Quorum of the Twelve hears these arguments and then kind of say, we're going to kick this up to the First Presidency. We're going to move this up a level and see what they think. For me, that's actually incredibly refreshing to see that you can have senior church leaders who can have such different points of view and can disagree, but they can disagree and they can debate healthily. This is clearly something that the church leadership wants to get some more clarity on. And so I think it's refreshing for me to read and to see that there can be a tolerance of different views on pretty huge issues. I think they really had been looking for clarity on this. And that's evident in a number of things that had happened since they had put out the 1909 First Presidency Statement. After that period, they invite James E. Talmadge and John Witso into the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. They put together a committee to regularly hear from Frederick Pack, who was an LDS geologist who replaced James E. Talmadge. Pack was very pro-evolution, had written about that on his own and in some church sources, and they wanted to get his perspective. In 1920, the church leaders had invited a BYU professor to come give them a lecture of sorts on evolution. And the outline to that lecture is 25 detailed scientific pages. And the guy who gave that was Martin Henderson at BYU. And so they were very much trying to get the best information they could from people who had both the scientific understandings and credentials to give it and who were known to be absolutely committed mainstream Latter-day Saints. But just following up on what James said before about the willingness of church leaders to entertain these different views and and to have conversations about something that they don't necessarily see eye to eye on in that moment. There's this moment going back now to Joseph Smith when he's meeting with the Council of Fifty, and that's a deliberative body, and they argue a lot of different questions. And he told them on one occasion that one of the reasons that they failed to succeed and make progress on some of the questions that they were debating was, quote, because in their organization, they could never agree to disagree long enough to separate the pure gold from the dross by the process of investigation. I've always liked that quote. I consider it a teaching of the prophet Joseph Smith about how you work in councils. And so that's just an interesting way to think about uh, some of those debates that were happening. Well, Ben, I'm curious about this conversation. Were other Latter-day Saints interested in this topic or asking questions about evolution? Absolutely. Milton Benyon, who was a church administrator, the equivalent of the church education system back at the time, he writes that science and religion were the number two concern of Latter-day Saint youth in the early 1930s. And there were a lot of Latter-day Saints who were exploring this in various ways. You had apostles like Witso and Talmadge and Stephen L. Richards. 
You had church educators like Adam S. Benyon, John Whitaker, Franklin West, Nels Nelson, and Guy C. Wilson at BYU. These are all people who were writing books, giving talks, radio addresses, and lessons about evolution and its compatibility with Christianity and the church. You also had Latter-day Saint scientists like Frederick Pack at the University of Utah, Martin Henderson and Vasco Tanner at BYU, who were teaching the science of evolution and arguing for its compatibility. There are two examples that I'd like to throw in here. Adam Benyon, who is the superintendent of church schools in 1925 and gets called as an apostle in 1953 to replace Witso, gives a lesson in 1925 entitled Evolution and Christian Faith. He gives a good explanation of evolution with scientific sources. He provides evidences for it. And then he discusses its relationship to Christian faith. And he and others who are teaching these things are trying to pass down to the LDS teachers on the lay level that evolution was not the threat to their religion that they necessarily thought, that they might be getting from newspapers or other American sources. Frederick Pack was a geologist and a paleontologist. He was invited by Rudger Clausen, who was the president of the 12, to give a radio address, which he titled Evolution and Its Relationship to Religious Thought. Now, Clausen knew that Pack was very pro-evolution and very much approved of this address. This was very much being talked about at pretty much every level in the church. And these people I've named who were teaching and speaking, they weren't doing this secretly. These were discussions and lessons that were being given in the open and spread around and sometimes published as pamphlets and highly distributed. So it was a big conversation that was going on. Evolution was not a forbidden or evil topic. And it's really interesting going back and discovering all these LDS people talking about it at the different levels because I had not known any of that before I started my dissertation research. Well, thank you, Ben. From what you're saying, it's clear that there are many educated and interested Latter-day Saints who are trying to engage with the subject during this period. And I suppose that's why the First Presidency is happy to kind of say, quote, leave geology, biology, archaeology and anthropology, no one of which has to do with the salvation of the souls of mankind to scientific research, end quote. So I guess considering that the church had previously released The Origins of Man, why was it that B.H. Roberts and Joseph Fielding Smith were still bringing the subject up and trying to engage with it publicly? That's a complicated and really interesting question. And it really has to do with each of their different premises and approaches to making sense of information. One of them was, of course, that science continued to produce new facts and evidences of an old earth, of fossils, of death going on for long periods of time. And these were being taught more and more in public schools and in the church education system and at BYU. And Roberts really thought this may not be central to faith, but we can't simply ignore it because members of the church are going to encounter it. So how do we make sense of it? And for Joseph Fielding Smith, he came at it from the perspective of this absolutely does have to do with the salvation of the soul of man. This is a core topic because the way he conceptualized revelation and scripture and interpretation, he felt that if the science were true, 
then you had to discard prophets, revelation, scripture, the temple, Jesus, and the atonement. And so for him, all of this stuff struck directly at the core claims of the church. And that's why he couldn't leave it alone. Well, Ben, given your profession and your faith, how have you reconciled science and religion in your life? One of the ways I have done this is through my lens as a historian. And so for me, I am willing to listen to science. I am willing to read extensively in church literature and scripture. I spent six years of my life studying Hebrew and Aramaic and Assyrian and Babylonian to better get at what the Old Testament was really trying to say. And so at least when it comes down to this issue of evolution and scripture, science and religion, a lot of people reconcile these by aligning them. And my studies have led me to reconcile them in a different way. Namely, these are apples and oranges. Our religious sources, particularly ancient scripture, are not attempting or intending to provide the same kind of information that geology or paleontology or biology provide. And so to try to compare the two is to make a category error, I think. It is to ask scripture to do things that God did not intend it to do. You can't ask a Geiger counter what the temperature is outside because that is not what it's designed to tell you. I can talk about what Genesis meant to the Israelites and the important things that were revealed to them through that, that it was trying to convey. And it doesn't really have anything to do with the age of the earth or things like that, that we today seem to think it providing important information on. Or at least we think that whatever science tells us about the age of the earth, that must be what Genesis 1 is really saying for it to be true. And so we adjust the days of Genesis to be really long periods, or we go the other way and we say, well, Genesis says days, so science must be wrong about the earth being old. And my response is to break that alignment and say, these aren't talking about the same thing, so they don't have to match up. It's okay. Scripture is still true. Well, thank you so much for that, Ben. It's been great to get some extra insights into this episode of Church History. And I'm sure as you continue to research and write on it, more of our understanding will come out. Well, let's shift gears now for a moment and talk about William and Clara Daniels. And Matt, I know you've spent time looking at this story and and understanding these two pioneers of the church, but what can you tell us about William and Clara Daniels and what they were like as individuals? I'm really excited for Saints readers to get to know William and Clara. I think this is a remarkable family. It's one of two really, really fantastic families in Saints Volume 3 that are Black families, and we're really excited to be able to include their stories. The first one's Len and Mary Hope, who lived in Alabama and then Ohio, and William and Clara live in Cape Town, South Africa. And William, before he joined the church, and he joined the church a little bit later in his life, he had been a deacon and an elder in the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa. That was his religious background. He kind of came to a little bit of a moment where his interest in religion waxed and waned a couple of of different points in his life. But there's a moment when he finds out that his sister, his brother-in-law, and his son had all joined this church, this new 
group that he was not very familiar with, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and they'd actually moved to Utah. So his son moved to Utah to live with his sister and brother-in-law. And this is about the same time when he's kind of having some questions about his relationship to the Dutch Reformed Church and his faith there. So there's kind of this opening, and the mission president, Nicholas Grosbeck Smith, both himself and by reaching out with some of the elders that are serving in the, in the South African mission, visit William Daniels, who is a tailor. He owns his own tailor shop in Cape Town, and they visit him. And he becomes just very interested in the church. He's a little bit reluctant to make a big move to convert. He's also somebody who has enough means to travel, and he and his other son hopped on a boat in 1915 and traveled to Utah <laughs> to investigate further. Talk a little bit to his sister. At some point early on, uh, the missionaries had made it clear to William that he would be ineligible as a man of mixed racial ancestry, ineligible to hold the priesthood, to hold offices like he had held in the Dutch Reformed Church before. And it was a concern to him. When he came to Utah, he took up this question with Joseph F. Smith, like went right to the highest possible authority to get an answer to this question. Joseph F. Smith affirmed what Daniels had heard before, which I think was a disappointment to William. But he also gave William a blessing and told him that one day he'd have the opportunity to be ordained to the priesthood. I guess that was enough for William to hold on to. It gave him this hope, right? And so he's baptized while he's in Utah and stays here for a little while and then returned home later in the year, took both of his sons with him back to Cape Town. Struggles at first because not only is he not ordained, but he's, he finds out really quickly that, and maybe this shouldn't have come as a surprise, he's living in South Africa at a time that's before apartheid. This is the 1920s. And yet racial differences were really important in the way that South African society was structured. And so as a man with some Black African heritage, he's looked down upon a little bit and not made it to feel as welcome as I think he would have hoped in the white congregation in Cape Town. He wasn't about to allow that to deter him. And one of the really cool things about William's story is that he seems to be very firmly converted to the gospel. He's all in, I guess, to use the phrase that we use sometimes. So if you look at his history uh, with the church and the way that he navigated his relationship with that congregation, he's very conspicuously pious. He wins all of the mission competitions for giving away the most Book of Mormon copies and attending the most meetings. He single-handedly raises more than half the money they needed to buy an organ for the meeting house in Cape Town. There was a mission competition at one point for who could read the Book of Mormon the most. And like he's always kind of the, in the leadership of these charts that they publish in the mission newspaper. You can't imagine a more engaged Latter-day Saint than William Paul Daniels, in spite of the challenges and some of the frustrations that he would have experienced as a Black man in the church at that moment. I'll share one other thing really quickly, which is that one of the biggest contributions he made to mission life in the life of the church in South Africa at that time was kind of a table fellowship that he created. A lot of times we think of a pulpit fellowship that would have been carried out by the white church leaders, the branch presidents, the mission presidents, and so forth, where they're in formal positions of authority and they're at the pulpit on Sunday and they're conducting and presiding, all of those kinds of things that we would talk about. Daniels just creates a, a table fellowship in which he invites 
really almost every missionary that served in that mission for decades to his home on multiple occasions, including their first meal when they arrive as missionaries in South Africa, welcomes them there, feeds them, prays with them, asks them for priesthood blessings, encourages them, bears his testimony to these missionaries. And so those occasions of meals and sitting around the Daniel's table were just a really, really significant part of church life for not only the the handful of Black members in Cape Town, but for every missionary for the mission president and a number of white members who would be invited and participate regularly. One of the things that he did that's really important is that although he was undeterred by this lack of welcome that he felt, he'd continue to go into the meetings. He probably bore his testimony as often in testimony meetings and fast meetings as anybody. But I think he began to sense the discomfort that his family members and other friends felt in those settings and started a weekly Bible study class where he could just very freely worship with anybody who wanted to worship with him and do it in a setting where his family would feel comfortable. And so these Bible study classes were held weekly, beginning sometime, we think, in about 1916 and continuing to the end of his life in 1936. So for 20 years. In 1931, the mission president, Don McCarroll Dalton, working with John Witso, who was serving as the president of the British mission and had oversight for the South African mission. They decide to create a branch of the church out of this Bible study class. And they make William Paul Daniels the branch president, even though he's not ordained to the priesthood. But they give him that calling, which makes him a fairly unique person in church history. And he serves as branch president for those last several years of his life. He participates in mission leadership councils and conferences. He leads the, and conducts the branch meetings. And these were just some of the most beautiful meetings where the most tender expressions of people's faith were offered, and they're recorded in those minute books. So that's where we get a lot of the story that we're able to tell about the Daniels and Saints. Matt, how did this branch work in practice? And did the members ever get to receive the sacrament? They didn't always partake of the sacrament. There's evidence in the minute books that there were times when they partake of the sacrament. And of course, it was blessed by white missionaries or a white branch president who would attend the meetings. But they'd open with a prayer. They would have announcements. They would sing hymns. It's really fun to go through and look at the minutes and and just see which are the hymns that come up again and again that are some of their favorites. And they have testimony meetings. They do in their meetings, a lot of the same kinds of things you'd expect from a branch meeting. Well, and the Daniels just sound like, you use the word an institution, and they do sound like they were a family, they were individuals who were able to overcome the frustrations or the hurt or the disagreement they might have about the church's views on people in their situation who are unable to enjoy all of the benefits of holding or receiving access to the priesthood, but they are able to find their place in the church still. Yeah, it's amazing to think about just how much he did. And I think he's in that sense an interesting gauge on the limits of what the experience of a Black family or Black man like William Paul Daniels could look like at the time. It's hard to imagine somebody that did more and was more engaged and more involved and who had their contributions acknowledged as extensively as Daniels did. I like to think about it in terms of this idea of reciprocity. And I know that's a big word, 
But a lot of times in our relationships, they're kind of transactional. Like I, I go to the store, I give people $5 and they give me a thing for that $5. And then our relationship is closed. But religion is a really interesting space. It it's, comes from a Latin word that means to bind together. And one of the things that religion can do is, is create social cohesion. And the reason that it works is because people are willing, to use the scriptural phrase, to cast their bread upon the waters, to send good out into the world without expecting necessarily an immediate or commensurate response, but knowing that by just giving and giving, that they're doing this in the hope of creating this cohesion and this feeling of unity and of finding belonging and influence in a community. And so that's how I read what Daniels is doing. He comes in, he knows that there are some limitations, he knows there are frustrations, but he's casting his bread upon the waters. He's giving everything he has. And I think a lot of it really is hinging on his hope and that promise that Joseph F. Smith gives him that there will be this reciprocity. And so it's important to listen to the way Daniels describes his relationship with the church and what he's getting out of all of this, because he's giving so much. What does he get? And he talks about the promise that Joseph F. Smith holds out there, but Daniels talks about how valuable to him it is to have the priesthood in his home, for people to come and to administer blessings of healing to him, and so many other things. But you get a real sense of this value that he feels and this belonging and, and influence that he has in that community. And it's important to keep in mind just how much he had to give to make that happen and to feel that way. Whereas maybe a white member wouldn't have to give so much in order to have some of those same kinds of feelings or that same kind of belonging or influence. But he's really quite an amazing person. And his decision to stay in spite of those disappointments or those challenges, and maybe some of that discomfort too, that decision to stay is not a decision that all Black members at the time succeeded in making. And so I think it's important to remember that too. We talk about the stories of Lynn and Mary Hope. William and Clara Daniels, they found a place and they loved the church. But even William's sons, the one that was baptized before him, and then the one that he took to Utah with him at the beginning of the story, both of them ended up, after they married, affiliating with other churches. And so they didn't make that same decision. Now, they still had very strong, deep feelings about the church, about its teachings, about the Book of Mormon. And this is evident years later when missionaries speak to them. But that decision to stay with the church was not one that they decided to make. Now, his daughter Alice did make that choice as a promise to her father when he died that she would stay true to the church. She lives to see the 1978 priesthood revelation. So in both of the stories that we've talked about on the podcast today, we have a degree of controversy, whether it's the priesthood or whether it's church leaders disagreeing with one another. Why is it important to address these issues? And how can they have relevancy for readers today? Well, this is a fantastic question. I think one of the reasons why seeing church leaders disagree with each other in history is it helps us understand the nature of prophethood. I mean, there's a reason why the president of the church has counselors. There's a reason why there is a council of the twelve. If we really operated the way some people think, that it's basically God to the president of the church, and he just spreads out what God has told him by dictation, we would have no need for councils. We would have no need for deliberation. We would have no need for councils on the ward level. I also think it's important because it illustrates the idea that truth is not necessarily obvious. 
even when revelation is not forthcoming, church leaders at the highest level with full dedication of heart and mind can disagree strongly. And that's okay. I think the Daniel story in particular is important because it leads me to reflect on how I handle difference between me and other people and what I need to be thinking about and doing better as a Latter-day Saint in the pews and in my ward every week where we live in a time when we have a prophet who's just been very adamant that we think carefully about racism, that we root it out, that we try to examine ourselves really carefully as individuals and as a people. And I think it's on us to listen to these stories and think about what we need to do as individuals and in our wards, just to ensure that we're not creating those kinds of feelings and those experiences. That's an absolutely timely, relevant, really important message for right now. Well, thank you so much, Ben and Matt, for being with us today to talk about these really important stories, these characters that we're so lucky to meet through saints. And I appreciate you connecting these important messages to our lives today. Thank you again for being here. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.